So what you're really the, saying is you want a return of the wet puppets era. I mean, uh, yes. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are green in San Diego, California. That's right. I'm just getting the Halloween vibes ready. Cassidy <laughs> Robinson, you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. I just think you had uh, backlight envy going on. A little bit, yeah. You, you, I, I mean, you clearly have poster envy. Yes, I, it's true. I, I started hanging a little bit more back there. <laughs> um, I brought one of the ones from my, uh, living room into, into the room. So I had something that people could look at if they decide to watch these videos on youtube.com MacGuffin pod, where you can watch the video version of the podcast. Uh, today we're going to be recording an episode, uh, doing reviews for Totally Killer, the Amazon Prime original sci-fi horror comedy, and for our streaming homework, we're going to be doing the movie Possession from 1981. I'm sure we'll have a lot to say. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I might not have a lot to say. It left me kind of speechless yeah <laughs> yeah i'm glad that i i at least had 24 hours to sit on it but i probably need <laughs> yeah. much much more than that um but just as a uh a brain teaser something to get our cylinders firing mm -hmm. we're gonna do a classic game andy cone would be proud fuck mary kill Halloween style, the crazy ladies of <laughs> Stephen King universe, fuck, Mary kill Margaret white from Carrie, uh -huh. Annie Wilkes from misery and Mrs. Okay. Carmody from the mist. Um, kill Mrs. Carmody, uh, easily. Uh, fuck Carrie's mom, because she's, she's got some pent-up repression, and, uh, Mary Annie, she's, she's a sweetie, as long as you do exactly what she wants. I mean, it is hinted at, I, I, I've never read the book, but it is hinted in the movie that she may have killed her previous husband and fed him to the pig yeah <laughs> i mean sure i mean she's very resourceful <clears throat> yeah she's a nurse she's, she's technically an independent lady there's nothing wrong with that and and as long as you respect that and respect her and you'll are, be fine are very into her interests yeah that would be very important. Sure. But uh yeah, I think I think that's my my order. What it what about you? Fuck Mary Kill. You know, 
I have to, th- I'm trying to preserve my life mostly in this oh, situation. No. <laughs> I mean, because come on, all- no, that's that, and this, that, that's not happening. Like, all one three of, these- of them are, are super crazy and, and definitely capable of murder. But yeah, I think my order is the same. You got, uh, Margaret White, by the way, R.I.P. Piper Laurie, who just recently passed away. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, she uh, she played Margaret White in the original Carrie. Um, you know, pl- chewed it to pieces. She was also a uh, reoccurring character in Twin Peaks. Um, I think the last thing I remember seeing her in was that Joseph Gordon-Levitt movie Hesher. Uh, but yes, uh, you know, definitely go back at the very least, watch the original Gary, watch her in Twin Peaks. She's terrific. But yes, I mean, obviously, you know, you get a little, get her a little whiskey drunk and she's going to be, she's going to be a good time. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But that, you know, that's the name of the game, right? That is the name of the game. And again, this is more about self-preservation than anything else. <laughs> um, yes, Annie Wilkes is the most resourceful. She can take care of a farm, her home. She's a nurse. Um, uh, I think you're you're playing with, with fire with that one. Now, as far oh, as absolutely. we know, as far as we know, Mrs. Carmody had never done anything violent. That's Prior true. to the events of the mist, and and the it is. I mean, a she's not a good person. Stressful situation. Yeah, she's clearly not a good person. She's clearly insane. All three of them are some level of zealotry going on. Uh, her mm-hmm. probably the most. Uh, I feel like, but. Nobody still liked her in the mist, like e- even though she wasn't like fully like cult leader, child killer yet. Like she like everybody in the store still didn't like her before all of that. Right. She was kind of seeing this the town crank. Yeah. Yeah. So I almost kind she's of just feel, not a, I she's feel just a not little like, mean saying kill Miss Carmody because until there's giant monsters attacking your home, I think she would probably be fine other than being just generally unpleasant. Yeah. And she's just too intense and like, you know, you can't have a laugh with her. No, super gaslighty. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, if we're just going on, if we're just going on, uh, uh, self-preservation, I think I'm going to make a switcheroo. I think I'm going to kill Annie Wilkes because she's for sure going to do something to you. Whether she knocks (laughs) your ankles out with a sledgehammer or tries to feed you to her pig. Uh, Yeah, it's it's not something bad is going to happen. Whereas (laughs) with Mrs. Carmody, as long as everything is okay. Uh, with the world around you and you can escape and, you know, go take a weekend or something. I think you'll at the very least live. 
All right. I can see I can see your logic there, but uh I'm sticking with my answers. Okay. There you have it. If anybody has any other opinions uh on your fuck Mary kill of these three individuals, uh please share your thoughts on social media at MacGuffinPod, Twitter and Instagram. All right. Let's go ahead and get started with the first review, Totally Killer, and I'll let you set that up. What happens in this film? Uh, Totally Killer is, it's about this small town slasher killer, uh, the Sweet 16 killer who, who murdered three girls back in the 80s, and then uh, returns years, years later, uh, to finish off the last of the friend group, Kiernan Shipka's mother. She, uh, through shenanigans inadvertently travels back in time, uh, and has an opportunity to, to try and stop the sweet 16 killer from, from killing everybody. Yeah. So <laughs> that kind of like <laughs> threw me off a little bit. Just like suddenly time travel is uh, introduced into the plot. Essentially, yeah, it's, uh, you know, they, they're not shy at all about making the comparisons that this is sort of a slasher killer comedy meets like a back to the future style narrative where she goes yeah, back they- to the 80s. She ends up running into her parents, and they talk mm-hmm. about time paradoxes and things like that. She has to make sure things happen a certain way, and she's always sort of the the stakes being different rather than trying to, you know, get to the clock tower on time. She's chasing a killer to try and stop the kills before they happen. Mm-hmm. And I think the comedy sort of comes from a little bit of a intergenerational fish out of water thing where she's experiencing, she finds out that her parents were kind of the bullies. Uh, well, and, and just the, the kind of like teen culture war of, you know, a Gen Z versus a Gen Xer. Right. Yeah. Where everything <clears throat> was a, a lot less politically correct and a lot less, uh, sensitive in general Mm -hmm. and they maybe overplay that hand a little bit here or there um after like the 15th time she makes a this is problematic joke it's like okay like we understand you understand you've you've been on the earth long enough to know that there was a world before you existed in it like you at some point you have to try to assimilate here um, yeah, yeah, I I kind of agree with you there. Uh, and like most of the co- I thought the funniest jokes weren't when she would see something and be like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's problematic or whatever. Uh, but just the kind of like I thought the funniest jokes was just sort of her interacting with the people in this time, like instead mm-hmm. of. You know, seeing, you know, a, a Indian mascot on their high school, uh, 
you know, and rolling her eyes at it. It's funnier when you see this guy who's just this big old jock uh, acting like the douchiest. I got a lot more mileage out of those gags Mm -hmm. than the sort of intergenerational jokes. I, I agree. I think they maybe hit that note a little too much for my taste. I also like the idea that just generally speaking, people were way less safe and way let and way more careless about things like yeah. she tries to find certain people and she's like I know this is probably classified information but I, what class was so and so in the counselor's like oh it's this class right here <laughs> yeah 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 i i thought those were the funnier jokes of of actually seeing her sort of interact with these ideas versus just sort of rolling her eyes at them right and i and i love the the conversations between her and her mother, yeah, uh, her teenage I, I also, mother, and yeah, I, I also thought that was a good source of the comedy. Like, you know, she's only known her mom as this like over sort of stereotypical house mom, and right. to see her be like a teenage bully, I thought was a lot of fun. Right, and essentially, your mo- her mother is. In a group called the Mollies, which is very similar to like the Heathers, mm-hmm. um, and there's a there's a bit of that kind of satire in the movie as well, although not nearly as dark. Um, I think, as far as the science fiction plot goes, I I could have used way less self referential. Oh, this is just like Back to the Future jokes. Yeah, mm-hmm. like it. It got to the point where it was less like Back to the Future and a bit more like Rick and Morty, where it was like self-referential just for the sake thereof. Well, also like I, I feel like the time travel element was a little convoluted, and there's a lot of there's a lot of Shoots and ladders. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and and did you ever see Freaky? Uh, no. So, so it came I, out last year, right? Yeah, and it's a similar tone. You know, it's it's um, uh, Vince Vaughn is like the serial killer, and then he threw this like ancient cursed knife or whatever, mm-hmm. and like does a Freaky Friday, and they switch bodies. And I, I kind of liked how that addressed that sort of high concept more because they didn't they didn't need to sort of use as much time with it. It was like, oh, this is just sort of this cursed dagger. Uh, I, I feel like maybe if they I it just felt like a lot, a lot on top of a lot, uh, you know, because there's this sort of killer mystery uh, then there's the fish out of water stuff. And then there's also this sort of sci-fi comedy stuff. And to me, the sci-fi stuff is where the movie fell the shortest. Well, uh, it, that's where it's the most plot heavy. Yeah. And it just re- required the most explaining and the most, and they were just kind of, it, it just felt like they kind of got hung up on, on that a little bit too much for my taste. Um, like, yeah. you know, the, I, I felt like sort of the whole first 
10, 15 minutes of this movie is just all expository dialogue, like explaining the world and like explaining who these characters are. And, and then they have to go and explain that, Oh, time travel's real. And it just, it feels clunky. It felt like they're, you know, like we want to see her back in time. That's where the juice of the movie is. And, you know, for her friend to just sort of happen to have a time machine, it just felt like kind of the movie was getting in its own way a bit. Yeah, I would have, I would have been just as happy, or I think it might have been a, a cleaner kind of storytelling trope if, like, you know, that amethyst crystal that her mother gave her, yeah, like exactly. for some reason was had was like witchcraft or something and sent her back in time. I think that might have felt a little more on theme too, right? Cause mm. all the sci-fi and the comedy, I get that it's not trying to be very horror. Um, but it, it, whatever horror edge it has is definitely diluted through all of these genres. Uh, and you can just tell they were the least interested in it being actually scary. Yeah, it reminded me a bit of the movie Happy Death Day, mm -hmm. which both of these movies were sort of high concept uh, deconstructions of the teen horror slasher through like the uh, a certain sort of sci-fi element or yeah, otherworldly element. Similar, yeah, yeah, and I think in the case of Happy Death Day, it was a lot cleaner and it was a, a lot uh, more economic storytelling wise because they didn't have to figure out a mechanical way that the person would kept reliving the same day a la Groundhog's Day style. Yeah, it, I, it just was like, happening. I feel like this sort of meta, you know high concept horror movie is starting to become diminishing returns for me. Um, because like, again, I, I keep bringing up freaky cause it's very similar in tone, but it wasn't afraid to also be a, a, a convincing slasher movie, right? Like mm. there's some pretty brutal deaths in it. And there's some, you know, like when it comes to do that, they don't, it fully sort of embraces the genre. And I felt like this kind of felt like it was kind of skirting around it. Like it, it wasn't really interested in being too much of a slasher. No, I mean, it's definitely pop horror um, at its poppiest. Mm -hmm. uh, it is uh, geared toward a more sort of younger teenage audience. And that's fine. I think yeah. Happy Death Day was sort of that way, too, with the PG-13 horror. This is R, but barely. Yeah, I think I think ultimately the problem is you have a hat on a hat on a hat, plot-wise. Like, they just had a hard time kind of writing themselves out of corners. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I also just wanted to see more of the sort of back-and-forth of the characters, because once we actually start to get to know them, uh, it, it that's when the movie becomes a lot more fun. And that's when 
but you know, and then these characters start dying off and it, it, it just feels like, like you said, uh, you had on a hat on a hat. And, and I feel like the third act, uh, kind of stumbles at the finish line as well. Cause it's got to sort of resolve all of this stuff. It's got to resolve who the killer is and get her back, you know, in time. And, and it, it just, it was a little much, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's not perfect. I think it's perfectly watchable. Yeah. Like there's, I mean, it was fun enough. I had a good time watching it. It was, it went down pretty easy. I think that, um, uh, the lead here, uh, Kiernan Shipka, mm-hmm. most people probably know her as, uh, Sabrina, the new Sabrina, or she was in Mad Men. Um, she's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of the other team cast members who play in the eighties stuff, uh, they're a lot of fun to watch and, um, they, they have some fun with some cliches, uh, and other times it's a bit more like we're going to do the cliche, but it's not a cliche because we're commenting that it's a cliche and trying to, that circular reasoning doesn't always pay off, but. Uh, yeah. yeah, I, I had a decent enough time with it. It's, it's fluffy. It's light. It's whatever. I give it like a C plus. Yeah, I think that's sounds right. Uh, I, yeah, I would agree. C plus, you know, it's fun enough, but I don't, I didn't get a ton out of it. And, mm. you know, I'm not going to need to watch it again anytime soon, but, um, it's fine. Yeah, especially for streaming content. Oh, I will yeah. say there there was one element that really uh, threw me out of the movie a lot. Uh, he, the camera was often using like these panoramic, these like wide oh, angle yeah, panorama like, shots. Fisheye lens. Yeah, and then it would try and move. Like if it wasn't centered directly, it would, and they tried to like move the camera with the wrong lens on it. It just yeah. all of a sudden you were very aware that you were watching a movie. Yeah, I I thought that was an odd choice as well. I um yeah, I noticed that too. If you're gonna you know do a whip pan or something like that, you you can't use a wide angle lens. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. Let's go ahead and move on to your first segment. Uh, you you prepared the segment this week, so go ahead and explain it to us. So I wanted to uh, – I, I challenged you to come up with three types of, of horror movie monsters or tropes uh, that we feel are underrepresented in movies right now. Um, yeah, I, I – I think we did a segment like this similar, uh, similar to this a while ago. So I wanted to put a moratorium on like the big obvious monsters to know like vampires or werewolves or, um, Frankensteins or, or zombies, things like that. Um, I, you know, but like what kinds of movie monsters would you, do you think we don't see enough of, or maybe we just haven't seen in a while? Okay, cool. Uh, well, I 
I um, and then I, I also told you you could um, think of it as like a movie pitch too if you if you wanted. I don't have anything that detailed exactly, but I do have. I kind of went more into the mythological, into the folkloric, okay. um, and cryptozoological world. Uh, okay, all to right. sort of we, pull we, from. I wonder if we're going to have some uh, similar answers here. Uh, I don't know. Um, for my first one, I am going to pick goblins. Okay. All right. You know, we've seen goblins in sort of like fantasy, um, specifically like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, whatever, but never like the folkloric zombie or, uh, goblins specifically while, while I was, uh, reading about it. I I ran across this folklore story of this goblin called Red Hat. Who oh yeah, Red Hats are cool. You know about Red Hat? Okay. I know about Red Hats. So they're, the, they're the little or red caps, and they got like these little like gnome caps. And don't they have like sides and they like like cut your ankles and stuff? Yeah, and the reason their caps are red is because they're soaked in the blood of their victims. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, when you start to research too much into certain things, you realize how much of, like, these cryptozoological or uh, folklore traditions kind of, like, lead back to anti-Semitic tropes. So we're not going to do that. No. But, no. <laughs> um, but I think that we've never... We've never gotten a goblin movie where the goblin is meant to be scary and not just like a a fantasy mission on the way to something else. Yeah. No, you're you're totally right. I I think uh you know the closest we get to that is like with trolls. There's, you know, there tend to be a lot more trolls because mm. maybe they're a little bit bigger. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm totally, I'm totally down with goblins. I, I have an answer that's very similar. Um, but, uh, I'll save that for my, for my last pick. Uh, my first pick is a Bigfoot. Now there hasn't really been any good, like, attempts to try and make like a good scary bigfoot movie right like you see a bunch of like you know direct to streaming schlock or direct to dvd stuff it's just like killer bigfoot and just really generic and uh dumb looking and i think it would be very cool to have like a blair witch meets friday the 13th uh, with Bigfoot, you know, these campers stumble across a Bigfoot like that would be a very scary situation. And the myth of Bigfoot is like it, it, he's such a well-known creature that it surprises me that there hasn't been like an earnest uh, take on Big and try to just really make it as as scary as possible couldn't even really think of any good Bigfoot movies except for like Harry and the Hendersons. Right. That's what I was going to say. The other, the other angle besides like direct to DVD schlock is usually comedy. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, like there's a Bigfoot in a Goofy movie and right. uh, Harry and the Hendersons. Like, yeah, it's it's usually kind of just played off as a joke. And I think, you know, I think there's enough. And then there's all the animated movies, all the animated Big Feet and Little Feet. Oh, yeah, movies. yeah. I didn't even think about yeah. those. Like, yeah, <laughs> Zendaya is Michi. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, mm. I would love to see someone just like really – go for and you could do it you know fairly low budget and mm -hmm. i think it could be very uh if it's directed well very effective yeah i mean i, I think that's why everybody is a little afraid to approach it is because it's so it's so ingrained in pop culture as as being sort of a hokey yeah uh uh, paranormal researchy kind of thing that nobody really takes it that seriously. Yeah, there's too many TLC Bigfoot hunt, you know, the hunt for Bigfoot type shows, and mm -hmm. and you know, it, it's the people who believe in Bigfoot are often just kind of written off as like a freak show type thing, and that's what I think makes it so sort of ripe uh, for a genuine treatment. Mm. Uh, let's, let's take Bigfoot back. Okay. Yeah. I'm down. Now, would you want it to be more sort of like a traditional Pacific Northwestern Bigfoot? Or would you think like Skunk Ape, Abominable Snowman? Oh, I, I could go for whatever. Mm. I would say maybe avoid like an Abominable Snowman or a Yeti, um, I, I would prefer something a little more, you know, uh, green brown. forest. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just just to really hit home the Bigfoot vibes. Um, you know, it could be like a pine forest during the winter or whatever. But in my mind, I'm picturing like a group of kids camping. Uh, and yeah, I just think that leads itself more to like the Pacific Northwest. But I'd take a skunk ape. Yeah. All right. My next pick is the Thunderbird. Oh, cool. Have you ever seen that photo? Uh, it was taken. Probably. It was taken or doctored or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, in like the early 1900s or late 1800s like flash photography and it shows like this uh tribe of natives holding up what it looks to be a dead thunderbird or like hmm. a, a pterodon maybe with feathers yeah i think i have I, it, this sounds familiar I'm, I'm sure if i saw it i would go yeah yeah i've seen that yeah i mean if it, it, it's googleable you can find yeah. it but you know it sort of activates the imagination to see that. And obviously it was a myth that was very popular, not just amongst the Native Americans, but all the, going all the way back to ancient Greece, ancient Rome. You know, many different cultures have something like it. A lot of mm -hmm. the Mesoamerican cultures have something similar to the Thunderbird. Yeah. And... I think you could go one or two ways with this. You could go sincere, um, you know, make a really scary movie about this giant ass 
pterodon slash bird that just can swoop down and kill anybody. You know, maybe set it in the past before there's like guns and rifles and things. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could play it more sort of like the tremors treatment and, and make it a little bit more light, make it a little bit more like, uh, this, this relic from the past, uh, interrupting modern day society. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, either way, I, I think could be cool. Yeah. Also, I, you know, I, it's hard to do. I think it's it's a challenge to do sky monsters just mm. in general, because um, generally speaking, you're just going to need a lot more effects shots. And it also presents some challenges in. In the way things are going to be filmed, and I I think that could be you know really cool. We saw, you know, Jordan Peele very successfully, I think, did that recently with uh, Nope. But I, I think it is hard to do sort of a flying monster. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily want to be in the clouds with it too much. Mm-hmm. I, I would, you know, especially if you're if you're going for scary. I would I would I would play it more. More like tremors in that it you you show it as little as possible, or just yeah. kind of show the damage it can do, and then save those money shots for when you really need them, and then use practicals as much as possible. That goes oh, yeah. without saying for anything that I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't want to see some stupid rubbery looking CGI thing just flying everywhere. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's not going to be scary at all. Uh, okay, my next pick is uh, Evil Genies, uh, specifically Evil Genies. The uh, I, I feel like, yes. Yeah. I am a sucker for like the sort of ironic wish fulfillment, and that kind of got played out as a trope you know in the 80s and then once people sort of became aware of that you know then we started to get stuff like bedazzled um you know and and sort of more comedic takes on it it, you know and and then up to most recently uh, a thousand years of longing um you know which was a, a romance and i think you know, let's bring back the evil genie. Let's bring back the be careful what you wish for uh, type of thing. Get, you know, probably not reboot the Wishmaster franchise, but something <laughs> along those lines, I think uh, yeah. it could be really cool and really scary. I think, uh, you know, genies are so sort of fantastical and otherworldly that you could do a lot of cool stuff and and there's plenty of room for artistic interpretation there. Yeah. I think it's a if if nothing else people should read more about the origins of the genie or the djinn and yeah. uh you know it's kind of like mermaids like mermaids are like ever since Disney everything sort of gets filtered through Disney and yeah. ends up becoming like your best friend, but yeah. uh, if you go back far enough to their their origins, are a lot more sort of these terrifying creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're they're always like they're 
goal is to trick you and to to get you to kill yourself like uh i I, yeah i think you know they're and i think there's something interesting there with genies specifically because they're typically portrayed as this sort of servant you know uh uh and i think that adds an interesting dynamic to the horror of you know this sort of you're dealing with this cosmic entity and you just have to be so careful and specific otherwise it will find a way to completely fuck you yeah that that whole monkey's paw yeah thing yeah um yeah i would be down for that i think that would be really cool and would you set it in current times or like in um classic arabian folklore Kind of. Um, I this one I was had less specific of a pitch. I just think it'd be cool to to see. Um, yeah, I I almost think you know something like a uh, thousand years of longing, where it's almost a series of vignettes, could be really cool. Um, and you know you could sort of progress through time and uh, maybe see the the destruction caused by the djinn. Yeah. Uh, let's see. What do I want to pick last? I think last I'm going to go with Changeling. Oh, okay. I almost thought about this. Yeah. And I'm not talking about the film, the George C. Scott ghost film, The Changeling, um, mm-hmm. which is very much sort of a straightforward haunted house gothic art tale. Uh, and I'm not talking about uh, that uh, uh, Angelina Jolie movie where her son comes back or whatever on mm-hmm. um, the Clint Eastwood directed. Uh, there is an actual myth uh, that this, that that word is based on of uh, a type of fairy. It's sort of mixed between a goblin and a fairy. It's sort of mm-hmm. demonic looking creature that replaces your child and it's similar enough that you're never sure, but you notice over time or longer and longer that this is not your child. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something so psychologically terrifying about that, that uh, you could have a lot of fun with it. And I think it would... I think it could be, if done well, uh, a really scary movie. Yeah, no, I I think um, I think there's there's definitely something there, and you could play with the sort of uh, you know evil child genre in a way that you know it beyond just sort of they're possessed by the devil or whatever. Yeah. Um, that would be really cool. I think. Um, Again, I think Jordan Peele had some elements of a changeling story in Us, the movie yeah. Us, yeah. Um, but it would be cool to see just like that be the full sort of concept. You could, like you said, it could be very psychological with it. it. Could you know almost be like Rosemary's Baby meets The Omen meets uh, something else? <laughs> yeah, I, I you know there's. 
there's been this trend lately, especially in in like the A twenty four horror films of this the destruction of the American family. Mm-hmm. It's sort of this common theme that sort of runs across all of them. Um, or this idea that the 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 traditional family unit is is no longer this stability that people can count on anymore. And I think you could play right into that sort of totally. uh, trend with a changeling story. And Dude, give me know. this script tomorrow. Like, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this. Yeah. All right. Cool. And, uh, okay, my last one, uh, which was similar to Goblins, um, but I'm still putting it in a different category. Now, I'm going to say this, and I want you to understand that I don't mean literally this creature. This is more of a trope. Uh, but gremlin-type, like, little monster people, right? Like, I get why you can't do gremlins, because gremlins the name is just so, so attached to the Joe Dante film. Mm. Um, But I love movies with mischievous little guys running around uh, fucking shit up. And, you know, like they're pests, uh, but they're monsters there. Again, there was a slew of these in the eighties. So many gremlin ripoffs with like ghoulies and critters and, um, and I, I think that Munchies. is a genre that, yeah, I, I think it's a mm-hmm. genre that I think would be fun to kind of bring back. Uh, I, I think the most recent example I could think of was, um, oh, what was that movie called? The, the Guillermo del Toro didn't direct it, but he produced it with the, like the little rat people. Was it don't speak? Something no. like that. Don't be afraid of the dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And which was a remake in and of itself of a TV movie from the seventies. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, don't be. Uh, I just like that was the last one, and that was like a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you know, I love little critters and monsters running around fucking shit up. Um, and you, you know. So what you're really the, saying is you want a return of the wet puppets era. I mean, I, yes, always. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, every movie should have more wet puppets. Just cover the latex and KY jelly. And, and yeah. Um, but I also was thinking like of a let's take kind of a modern take on it as well. Right. Like a, a lot of people. Uh, you know, it's not a secret that there is a, a crazy housing crisis going on for, you know, our generation and younger, where increasingly it's harder and harder to afford a home. So more and more you get these sort of situations of people living with roommates and living in these, you know, sort of cheaper, uh, you know, uh, affordable housing apartments and stuff like that and so i think it would be cool to to have like an apartment building that's infested by little monsters and uh you know just kind of like attack the block or um chud 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Setting it all in this sort of one kind of tenement house, I think, could be a lot of fun. I mean, I would watch that movie. Um, I wouldn't say that we're starved for that kind of movie or that sort of representation because there was a heyday of it. Like the when the Chiodos brothers were making everything. Oh, but, I mean, you're you're right. I just I want to kind of bring it back. I, I miss yeah. that sort of fun, uh, mischievous horror. It's it, you know, it, it's it's different from straight up horror comedy. Like a lot of them were horror comedies, but it's almost kind of its own genre at this point. <laughs> All right. Let's go ahead and talk about the streaming homework. And that is the uh, Andre Zawalski's Possession from 1981. Before you set this up, how much about this movie did, did you know about going into it? Not much. I knew that it was controversial. I knew that it was uh, that it was nominated for Palm d'Or, and that um, Isabella Gianni won Best Actress at the Cannes Film Festival that year, but the I uh, the film did not. Um, I knew Sam Neill was in it, but you didn't uh, know a lot of the story details. I didn't know any of the story beats. No, other okay. than. I had I had watched a review from uh, Mark Kermode a long time ago, back in like 2009. He reviewed on his radio program uh, the movie Antichrist, Lars von Trier's Antichrist, and he had compared that movie favorably to Possession. I see. Okay. Um, right. Which is gives maybe some people an idea if you've seen Antichrist. Um, yeah, so what is Possession about? So, Sam Neill plays a spy, I guess. I which That didn't read to me until I was reading the plot details later. But he plays a spy mm. who just returned back home. And having been away for a while, uh, he suspects that his wife has been cheating. And their marriage sort of comes to a head. And uh, they decide to take some time apart. He leaves their only son with her while he goes to work for a little bit longer. He comes back and finds that not only has she not been taking care of her son, she's not been taking care of the apartment. It's like destroyed, you know, the, the loft that they live in. And the son is, you know, covered in... Uh, in mess and, and, and hasn't been taking care of himself. And she seems to be sort of, uh, obsessed with something. She's bothered. And <laughs> at that point, they decide to separate and he hires a private detective to follow her and figure out what she's doing while he's away. And, you know, his, uh, his paranoias sort of become confirmed question mark that there's something more diabolical going on, you know, now yeah. you can describe yeah. the movie any which way you can, you know, lay out the plot points, blah, blah, blah. But the, what 
the movie is doing is very different than what the movie is. Yeah. Because this is entirely a tone piece, a mood piece, and it's more about this delirium. It's more about um, putting the viewer in, in to the headspace of this sort of, you know, extremely tumultuous uh, divorce. Um, it's, it's all about getting you to feel those feelings. And, uh, and I kind of knew that going into it. Like I, I knew really it wasn't until the, the sort of uh, third act that I started going, what the fuck? Yeah. I mean, you're, uh, the director sort of holds its cards closely in terms of the reveals yeah. of, you know, what is or what isn't supernatural. And even then, I think you could read the film literally or you could read the film metaphorically, and it kind of works either way. Uh, if you decide to watch it as a horror film, if you're there for Viscera, you get that. Yeah, but, surprisingly, um, <laughs> that I, that I was kind of not expecting all the gross stuff, right? But if you're if you're watching the film more as a sort of psychodrama, which is more the way I sort of took it, I think the movie to me has to do with the fragility of the male ego and no, oh, totally. And uh, jealousy and rage and how these manifest. And, you know, so the, the movie's called Possession, which is almost sort of does, does it a disservice because that's, you know, um, probably a more marketable word. But that's not really the type of film that it is or isn't a – this isn't like a – in well, the tradition it's, it's of the a, exorcist, you know, yeah, little it's, girl. It's not a literal sort. Well, it, 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 yeah, it's not like a literal demon from hell kind of, you know, what what the sort of Western idea of possession has become. Um, right. But I actually kind of love the title because I, I think it works on a lot of levels. Like immediately I was like, oh possession this isn't a, a demon movie like it's literally referring to sam neil treating her like a possession like it like an object like you know oh, she has no agency she has no you know he possesses her and then again in the third act you realize that there is maybe more of a supernatural uh uh kind of literal idea of possession as well so i i I actually ended up really liking the title. Yeah. I th- and I think that there's this, there's this physicality to everything, you know, like, yeah. Uh, everything from the performances, which are like screeching histrionics throughout the whole <laughs> film. Like everybody is, is almost Kabuki level, uh, uh, mannered in their, in their, their, the way they perform. And, 
Mm-hmm. And is um uh Isabel Ijani especially yeah uh in that role she really kind of goes somewhere else with it and you know it's hard, it's kind of hard to to decode what's press and what's hype and what's real and whatever but apparently this was a hard movie for her to shake after doing it i i mean i can see that like i i could see any of them like it's the only it's visceral like it it like you feel it in your guts and yeah. so much of the the way it was filmed leads into that uh like you like you're talking about the physicality like everybody's sort of gaunt and pale and uh, almost you know and everybody's like they're constantly staying in the same clothes for like days at a time and you see the sweat piling up and the and the stains and like it, there's just a tactile sort of nastiness to this movie. Right. And 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 often with these very minimally lit and uh minimally decorated sets. Like there's not a lot, you know, this is uh he's a Polish filmmaker. He started making films like, you know, both before and after the fall of the wall of the Berlin wall. And the Mm. film takes place in Berlin. There's something very European about the look and feel of the movie. Um, I believe this is his only English language film, but yeah. And, and then on top of it, you have this like steady cam work where he'll do these long takes with the actors while they're, you know, rather than like traditional blocking and, uh, you know, setting up sort of uh, how the scene work is going to play. It almost feels like the camera is dancing with the actors in this panoramic sort of way. It it also, that it it feels almost improvisational, uh, Mm -hmm. the performances, because it, you know, it's not so script heavy or dialogue focused um, that, it, you know, it, it feels like these setups were kind of like, OK, here's the basic idea of the scene. Now, just fucking freak out at each other for 10 minutes and cut. Right. Yeah. I mean, the movie, the movie as it progresses becomes more and more disorienting both mm. in the the way that it's filmed and also in the editing and the the a lot of the where they decide to cut the scene and begin the next scene you don't know like are we seeing something that already happened as a memory or are we yeah or you know is this a flash forward flashback or a different perspective or yeah there's especially early on um there's a lot of this sort of disjointed editing that i Mm -hmm. I, again it, it led me the movie kind of led me astray uh in that i i thought it might even have more of like a shining like quality uh, with Sam Neill's character. Like I was sort of ex- the way his reality is presented uh, in the beginning of the film, purposely disjointed and, and unreliable. And mm-hmm. then, you know, it, it kind of shifts as he 
you know, as he, he makes himself more comfortable back home, uh, he becomes a little bit more reliable and instead she's thrown into chaos. Uh, it's really interesting the way the perspective of the sort of madness shifts. Right. And this idea of, you know, this extended metaphor of divorce. Yeah. Um, and uh, the movie was also, I think, compared to The Brood a lot when oh, it came yeah, out. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Um, that movie is a lot... The Brood is a lot more Cronenbergian in the sense that it's <laughs> yeah. it's all, you know, it's all uh, cerebral. And and it's, it's kind of... Uh, looking at things in and making them physical, but doing so from this sort of analytical point of view, whereas this movie is, is all feeling. It's all about the rage, the, the, what you've, the the stuff that doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Uh, And I feel like the brood kind of lays its cards on the table a lot more. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, like, like you said, I think it's just a little more clinical of an approach. And yeah, this is all just about, you know, it's a mood piece. It's just get the audience in the headspace of total chaos. Yes. And, and I think that the more and more disorienting it becomes and the more and more histrionic and, uh, and out of this world it becomes. Yeah. The the more I found myself playing this interesting game with the movie of like how much do I invest in mm. any given narrative? You sure. know, yeah. How much should I be trying to solve in an analytical way and how, or how much should I just let wash over me? And I think ultimately that is the the most forgiving way to watch the movie is to experience, try to experience the emotion of it rather than mm-hmm. trying to figure it out literally. Cause I don't think there's anything literal about the movie. I, I don't know. I kind of go back and forth on that. I, I, I think there is and isn't um and i i don't know i i would probably need to watch it more uh if i decided i want to try and figure out what was you know sort of real but i i don't think it's necessary no um it, it, you know and, and i think i think yeah the best way to approach it is to just sort of experience it just to just like you said let it sort of wash over you and just try to be in each scene in each moment as it's sort of happening. Yeah. I mean, I found it, you know, when it was said and done, I had, I had mixed emotions while watching it, but when it was said and done, it was, it was very upsetting and very, and so disorienting that I wasn't even like, I wasn't even able to approach my, my feelings towards it in terms of, you know, did it tick these boxes or whatever? Like, it was, mm. it was, yeah, a genuinely, genuinely upsetting movie. And, um, <laughs> yeah. 
I would say its closest relative is uh, Lars von Trier's Antichrist. That it's certainly, this is a movie he studied while watching or while creating his film. Um, but I think you can see in the tone and the mood of the movie and the style, um, there were elements that reminded me a lot of the first Hellraiser. Um, okay. Yeah, I can see that. If you were to take things more literally and just kind of like go full on horror with it. Um, or, uh, I think a lot of Darren Aronofsky's thrillers and his psychodramas and the way like a movie like Mother or a movie like Black mm-hmm. Swan sort of plays yeah, out. The, the, I think the way he kind of plays with, um, tension with mood and and you know sort of visual metaphor within narrative i can see a lot of of that yeah uh honestly i thought a lot of marriage story which is not a horror movie at all uh, mm-hmm. but a you know a divorce movie and you know that is sort of like the literal events of a divorce and this is more like the emotional turmoil that the characters are are going through, right? So, yeah, uh, I think that would be an interesting <laughs> double feature to end mm-hmm. your relationship with. Yeah, like that. Like this is the nightmare they have when they yeah. set their head on, on the pillow from going to divorce court. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this is like sort of how it manifests the the demons if you will uh into some sort of uh physicality but it i mean it it's you know uh, polanski made some similar stuff early on rosemary's baby and and uh repulsion especially he's kind of the father of this style of paranoia cinema but um, it's really not like anything else. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is its own monster. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I believe I said last week when I assigned it that for a good while it was hard to find uh, a DVD copy of this that wasn't cut. Um, like there was an American cut that was only like eighty something minutes long. Mm-hmm. Um, and they like try to like reshape it to make it more conventional. Um, and, and I think that was very good at all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that's all there was for a while. And then there was a Blu-ray that came out, and then was it quickly out of print? And for a while, that was like worth like two hundred plus dollars. I remember seeing it like on behind the black the glass case at Amoeba Records, and oh. now it's been put back into print this version that you're you can watch on Sh- shutter or amc plus so this is a version that's the new blu-ray version which i believe is upscaled for uh better hd or whatever but um yeah the movie has a look it has a style it's yeah. it's very cold but it's sort of hospital sick yeah yeah, that's a good that's a good way of of saying it. And I think it's interesting that Sam Neill 
has kind of become this horror actor. You know, if you no, think- I mean, yeah, I mean, he did this. He did uh, In the Mouth of Madness, uh, John Carpenter's. Uh, he was in Event Horizon. I don't care what anybody says. Jurassic Park is a horror movie. Like, yeah, he that's he kind of been a trajectory he's always sort of been down mm-hmm. i mean he's done other work as well but um yeah there's just certain can, I, actors you know like i think jamie lee curtis also like even though she's mm-hmm. done the other stuff and she's proven herself she's sort of embraced by the genre world in a yeah, certain way yeah. and so is sam neill um isabel Ujani, which i want to say the only other movie i've seen her in was Ishtar when we talked about that. And <laughs> she plays the sort of love interest in that. And yeah. it's a very different kind of role. Um, yeah, very, very different. In this, I mean... She's got range. Yeah, I mean, it's a totally ego death, uh, self-emulating kind of performance. You know, oh, yeah. which, is, which is why I think she... Won the Palm Door for her performances. Um, well, and I, I can also see, like you said, uh, how it would be difficult to shake something like this because it, it is so internal, it is so emotional. It's it's so you know, it's not reliant on dialogue or plot, and so I think as an actor, it's got to be much more challenging to kind of get into a headspace where you can perform something like this. And, you know, and I'm not even talking about just being like method or whatever, uh, just the physicality of, of doing 17, 18 takes of of, this type of stuff. Yeah. of, Of gut, visceral gut screaming and crying and yelling and sweating. And like, like your body still experiences that. Like you still, you know, you know, you're at, as an actor, like you can, like you still feel it, it, it physically, mm-hmm. uh, because your body is doing these things. So even if you are completely emotionally detached from the source, like it's still going to have an effect on you. Yeah. There's something almost, especially the early scenes between her and Sam Neill, it feels like some sort of like couples scream therapy or something. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and I think that there, there's elements of that. Like there's nothing about the movie that's naturalistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if you try and watch this movie expecting naturalism or expecting, you know, uh, performances that are expected for modern day characters in certain circumstances, you're going to sort of raise your eyebrows at things. But I think if you sort of, again, just sort of let go and let the movie express itself, um, it's uh, very effective. Yeah. I'm not going to say an altogether pleasant experience. But I feel like you had a harder time shaking this off than me. I don't know. Like I, I, I like 
I don't know. I, I felt it and I was like, yeah, that was, you know, but I don't know. I, I was able to kind of walk away from it. Yeah. I mean, this is the movie I could see again. I don't even necessarily believe in like, you know, there's all those people who say, oh, that's a good movie, but you only see it once. Like, fuck that shit. If it's a good movie, I'll see it again. I don't care. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't believe in the, you only have to see it once. Um, well, I don't believe in that because I have a goldfish memory. And if I haven't seen something re- repeatedly within five years, I have forgotten half the movie. A lot of the times that's a, that's the case with me too, especially after a certain age. But uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, this would be a movie I would want to see again to get different interpretations of um yeah because there's there's to so study much, more yeah there's so much there it, it it is a really rich movie and it's really dense and i i'm sure there was a ton of stuff i missed a ton of details and uh i actually had to put the captions on at some at some point because i had a very hard time understanding isabel ajani um her or i think think her French accent I French Belgian yeah something like that yeah it's a uh, very thick and her playing across from Sam Neill who's the you know very has this very sort of posh uh well I think in in this he's going for more of a British accent even though he's New Zealand right um uh I found it hard to sort of cut back and forth between them and I was like I'm missing a lot of what she's saying um uh, but I just, yeah, I think that this movie, as sort of icky uh, emotionally as it is, um, is really rich. And there's just a lot of, uh, you know, sort of like Kubrickian detail um, to what's going on, on on in the frame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for the next episode, what do you have for the streaming homework? Uh, my friend and listener of the show, uh, Ted, has been pestering me for a, a, at least a year now to get us to watch One Cut of the Dead, a zombie movie that is currently streaming on Shudder. Uh, yes, and we'll, we will be talking about that. And if anybody has anything to say about any of the topics that we talked about on this podcast or previous you can reach us at our email, mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can find us on most social media at mcguffinpod, all one word. Lists of all of our homework that we've done on Letterboxd. And uh, we are also on uh, Twitter and Instagram primarily. Um, I don't know how involved with TikTok I want to be. I had a bad day on it the other day and deleted it off my phone. <laughs> yeah, I I I think I've it. decided it's like harmful for society and I don't want to be a part of it. Uh yeah. I, no, I agree. <laughs> I deleted my TikTok a while ago. I still have my account, but um I deleted the app cuz yeah. yeah, I agree. It's If I upload, I might do it just from my my computer, upload clips. So, you know, if you're subscribed to us or you want to look us up, see if we have anything new, 
Yeah, we are on all of the podcast apps, including iTunes and uh, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Leave us a star rating and a one-sentence review. Five stars, uh, please. That would be preferred. Uh, you can also read the reviews I do for the Idaho State Journal at IdahoStateJournal.com, Arts and Entertainment page. Or you can just Google Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment or Movie Reviews, and you should find those archived. Um, and uh, you can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. Uh, and be sure to read the other articles and reviews by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at the homepage MacGuff.in. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, you can also check uh, out my live performances at Mockingbird Improv. I'm a part of the show's um, Improv vs. Stand-Up and Lyrics and Laughs. So if you want to uh, come see a show, check out MockingbirdImprov.org. Okay, and that is the end of the episode. Yeah, so uh, the first thing you want to do if you see the killer is run. Remember, avoid the knife, keep your life. Bye.